You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Welcome to Real Vision. It's Monday, October 5th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Ed Harrison. But first, the day's stories with Jack Farley. Welcome back, Jack. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here as always. So, Jack, what are you looking at in markets today? Well, stocks are up today. Treasury yields are rising as well. Gold is posting some solid gains and oil is up close to uh, 7%. It's very near breaching the uh, $40 level. So definitely a day of risk on, which uh, to some may seem odd as uh, the first trading day after we realized that uh, the president of the United States had to be transported to Walter Reed Medical Center. But the dominant narrative seems to be that Trump's illness and his being in the hospital is going to bring people together. And by people, I mean the Republicans and the Democrats um, in the Senate. This theory first made the rounds uh, with Speaker Pelosi on Friday, um, and then it's made its way into uh, Wall Street uh, sell-side research reports and the news stories that, that follow them. Um, so it's now really become a canon on Wall Street. So uh, you know, there's the adage uh, in finance, good news is bad news and bad news is good news. Um, this is taking that to the, the uh, logical extreme, I'd say. Jack, I gotta be honest with you, I don't understand anything anymore. <laughs> Me neither, Ash. So quick note, we're filming this around 1 p.m. today. Uh, we're going to be filming the segment with Ed and I a little bit later in the day. So uh, your mileage may vary. Markets may move. Yes, definitely. So, I could look so, like a fool. So thanks for that note. <laughs> so, Jack, I know that you're also following the shock announcement uh, from uh, Cineworld. Yeah, well, actually, uh, thanks for pointing that out to me early this morning. I've been following it um, today. So Cineworld, it's the uh, world's second largest uh, publicly traded uh, chain of movie theaters in the world. They announced they were closing all of their 536 Regal theaters in the U.S. and 127 additional Cineworld theaters in, in the U.K. The stock tanked on the news, opening down 60%. It's recovered a little bit. Now it's only down uh, 37%. Its bonds are trading uh, down as well. Um, reading just a few few reports um, that the future really depends on future funding. People saying it, it needs about 300 to 500 million dollars of additional um, capital in order to stay solvent. It did price a note of uh, 250 million pounds in June. Whether it will be able to secure future funding, um, we'll see. You know, Jack, talking about things that I don't understand, I've never understood the exhibitor business. That's the movie theater business uh, here in the 21st century. Every time one of my film friends tells me that I don't understand the cinema experience, I say, I just bought a beautiful 4K TV for 499 bucks, great soundbar for 150, and I'm done. I'm done for the next five years. I don't really understand uh, what cinemas add to the equation in 2020. Well, Ash, I think uh, a lot of people are beginning to think more like you. Um, we're, we're living in the age, it's, it's Ash Bennington's world, uh, world, we're just living in it. Uh, I was reading a report that said Mulan is judgment day for um, cinema, cinema business because uh, they released it video on demand as well as in theaters, and it didn't do as well, um, as nearly as well as um, anticipated. Also, there's a little bit of uh, financial contagion within the business. AMC theaters, um, which is another... Uh, cinema chain, it uh, was down 
10% as well. I think it really stems from, you know, J James Bond. It's going to be delayed until 2021. I think it, people are beginning to suspect that this isn't a, a bump in the road like it is for airlines. So, you know, airlines are going to have a real rough time of it. They may go bankrupt um, during COVID. But if they can emerge solvent and alive um, after the COVID pandemic has passed, it'll, it'll still be a solid business. People will still continue to fly and it probably will increase. Um, but perhaps for uh, movies, you know, people will say, hey, no, I, I don't want to go to a movie theater. I want to watch Netflix. I want to watch Disney Plus or HBO. Um, so, yeah, it, it could be an accelerant of a, of a secular trend there that may never reverse. Yeah, exactly. This is one of my most hated contrarian opinions, but it's just going to cost you a fortune to take a family of four uh, to a movie theater, including the, you know, 40 gallon drum of popcorn and parking and all that stuff. It's just it's it's hard to understand that business model for me, at least. Jack, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ash. Great to be here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Ed, welcome back. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Uh, happy Monday to you. Happy Monday. Monday uh, that begins risk on here at the end of the day, beginning the week risk on. So S&P up 1.8%. Uh, on the day, closing at 3408 above the 34 handle. NASDAQ, big gainer of the major uh, indices, 2.32%, uh, up 3.2% to close at 11,332. And the Russell 2000 up even more than the NASDAQ, 2.79% to close at 15. 82. You know, Ed, earlier, uh, I taped the intro with Jack around one o'clock. Uh, and uh, Jack, who did a terrific job, as always, was saying that the dominant narrative on Twitter uh, and other places was that the reason that markets were rising uh, was that President Trump was hospitalized. And this somehow increased the probability of a deal with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, it didn't make any sense. I actually was joking with Jack, uh, saying, I don't understand anything. That comment has aged very well. Uh, because now, uh, with news that Trump is going to be released from the hospital, uh, markets up even further. So, you know, the, maybe we're just in a period here where the the ability to construct narratives uh, out of uh, unrelated events uh, is is reaching its apex. Yeah, I, I, you love it when something happens in the market, and you have to have a, a reason why it's happening. And as you say, and as Jack was saying earlier, the uh, insert the word amid, you know, that uh, markets rise uh, amid President Trump's uh, demise in the hospital. And then, you know, you could say the exact same thing, except now it's amid his release from the hospital, right. as if there's some sort of connection between the two. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it does seem as though, especially in periods of, of uncertainty, uh, people are grasping to find reasons. They're trying to find ways of connecting the dots with narratives. Uh, and sometimes they just don't make any sense. And, you know, uh, tomorrow you're going to be able to talk to Tony Greer, who has a much more tactical uh, view. He's not necessarily uh, spinning any narratives. He's just looking at what the tape is telling him. I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking at it in this you know, this RVDB from a longer term perspective, I like to look at the the macro lens. So I, I'm definitely not going to be doing any amids in, in this uh, view. 
Yeah. You know, Ed, precisely to that point, uh, you did a, an, an interview with David Rosenberg uh, that aired, I believe, uh, today that I think is one of the, the great canonical pieces uh, about this particular uh, period of time, the, uh, the challenges that we've had amid COVID, amid, but in this case, literally amid. Uh, and, and I just wanted to read the quote that you opened that interview with because I thought it was so powerful. This is coming from David Rosenberg's independent research. Quote, outside of the treasury market, asset prices still don't reflect the economic depression because they have been so heavily sedated by unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus. Beneath the veneer, there is rot. And then he goes on to wonder aloud how long the government can mask the problems in the underlying economy. And finally, to say, at some point, the well will run dry. Nothing lasts forever. Powerful words from David Rosenberg. Yeah. And, you know, um, I can't remember. I think it was Jack who uh, or Max who put together the title, David Rosenberg in a depression, own what's scarce. So, you know, the key word that, that jumped out at me off of the, the page was depression. And, uh, you know, uh, Dave, was, he's been saying that, you know, I read what you, you've been writing. Uh, I, you know, I, I take a similar view that this is not a recession. This is actually a depression that we're in right now, even though people are talking about the, the V-shaped recovery and the snapback rally and all of that. When you look at it just from a, a macro lens, you know, zoom out. Don't zoom in at like the amids. We're looking at a depression that we're talking about now. And the question, therefore, is uh, what does it mean in terms of how you're going to invest? What does it also mean from a, a policy perspective? He was getting to that a bit. Yeah. I would call this one almost a, an internal peer-to-peer -peer interview because you guys went through your research uh, together, unpacked a tremendous amount of data, uh, and tried to sift through it in a way that made sense. So when you think about the things that uh, David was talking about in terms of the data points, what were the ones that leapt out at you as most powerful, as most indicative of the narrative that you're seeing unfold? Well, I think he was, uh, for me, he was answering three questions. Actually, he answered two, uh, and he's going to perhaps answer a third later. He was answering the question uh, of, are we, what kind of cycle is this? What kind of economic cycle is this? Then the question is, d given this cycle, what sort of policy response should we expect? I think that, you know, during our election coverage, he'll come back and he'll talk to that. He talked less to that here. This was an investment idea. So he talked more to uh, what kind of investments do you want to have given this particular cycle? And so the first uh, part of the narrative is about the depression. And interestingly, if you think about a recession and the way that the National Bureau of Economic Research defines a recession, what they say is, is, is that a recession is a, a drop uh, across a wide swath of different uh, metrics, jobs. We're talking about industrial production, et cetera. Uh, and it's dispersed uh, very greatly across the, the economy for you know weeks or, 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 or months. There's no defined period. It's not the two quarters that people talk about. And in this particular recession that dated back from February, they said it was so deep and so broad that they had to say that uh, even though it was probably uh, you know two months, three months in duration, or it, it could have even been less, you know they, they called it in 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 April uh, that it had already happened in uh, February. I think maybe April or May. So the difference, however, between a recession and a depression is the duration. That's, mm -hmm. that's where, where the rubber hits the road. So uh, we saw a six-year uh, peak to trough to, 
to reemergence in terms of non-farm payrolls in the last cycle. That is from 2008 January to sometime in 2014. That was a, a makeup of about nine million jobs. Uh, right now, after the snapback, we're all we're still at 11 million jobs to make up now, uh, and and so it gives you a sense of the magnitude of the uh, of, of the downturn, and many of the jobs that we thought were temporary layoffs are now turning into permanent layoffs. So when you think about all this together and you, you're forward looking into you know what could happen, he's saying it's a depression. And, uh, and a depression is, is quite a different event, uh, psychically and also uh, investment-wise than a recession. Uh, you know, if we haven't shown the chart already, uh, the chart that shows currently employment down 10% uh, with the context that during the depths of the great uh, financial crisis, employment declined 1.5%, so some 7x times higher on a percentage basis right now. That chart is very striking. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a, a, a complete different magnitude. You could say, I mean, you know, one thesis is, is that because of the V-shaped uh, snapback that really this is just a, a small window in time, but the reality now that we sit here uh, six, seven months after we had the the, the lockdown begin, we're still at a level that uh, of jobs that are missing from the economy to get back to the the prior peak, which was uh, in February. We're still 11 million below, and that's more than the Great Financial Crisis, which is the worst recession in post World War II history. So, if this isn't a depression, I don't know what is. Yeah, you know the other. Uh, conversation that you you guys had that I found really compelling uh, was when Rosenberg was unpacking uh, some of the data around wages uh, versus personal income, uh, showing wages decline, personal income rising, uh, effectively seeing government stimulus supplanting wage growth. Um, you know, David's quote was that I thought was so interesting. Quote: The medication provided by the doctors was more than double the actual pain that the patient received. $2 trillion stimulus package uh, that David ironically was saying is now viewed as skinny. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there are two parts of that and the way I'm thinking of it. One is, is about uh, what should you do? And, and, and that's a contentious issue. And the second is about what can you do? I think um, we learned in the last financial crisis, and we're learning even more now that you can do a lot more than people might have told you you could do uh, 20 years ago. And you know, in terms of fiat currency issuers, there's a lot more leeway in terms of what you can do. People are talking about modern monetary theory and the ability to print money to basically, you know, to deficit spend your way out of a depression. Uh, I think that what uh, Dave is basically saying is that you know there are limits to that, and if not uh, in a in a uh, you know absolute sense, there are limits in terms of a a political sense. And so the concept that you can just continue to deficit spend ad infinitum at some point you're gonna you're gonna uh, reach a wall, and uh, you know people are gonna start to reel that back. We can yeah. see that actually with regard to uh, the UK government because the Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak he's already talking about. Uh, cutting back for future generations. So there's always going to be a, a, a certain degree of disquiet as, associated with th this level of deficit spending that we're seeing now. I think the second uh, thing goes to the, the contentious issue. Should, what should you do? I mean, at a very basic level, I think what you should do 
is, is you should make sure that people aren't forced to make a decision between health and, um, and, and economics. When you have a wide, a large swath of people during a, a crisis where, you know, there's a contagious uh, pandemic, uh, making a decision, do I go to work, do I send my kids to school with the possibility of our being sick uh, because I have to do that, then you're not doing a very good job in terms of being able to suppress uh, the virus in a way that allows you the economy to power forward durably over the, the medium term. So a lot of the things that we're seeing now in terms of uh, the virus coming back, uh, you know, it, we'll see how different countries deal with that. But to the degree that they just allow people to uh, to go back to work because they're forced to do so, otherwise, uh, you know, they'd lose their job and, uh, and, and therefore they'll go back to work with the virus right. uh, in hand. You're going to see those countries probably perform uh, not so well from an economic perspective because the virus will spread in a way that causes people to uh, to take take fright. Yeah, it's a great interview, and people should uh, watch it in 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 its entirety if they can. Uh, but Ed, how would you sum up your final takeaways uh, from that conversation? I would sum it up in terms of the investment thesis. Uh, you know, uh, he, he says in a depression, own what's scarce. And the way that I look at it is that we're in a period of secular stagnation. Even if you didn't call it a depression, you would definitely call it a um, uh, secular stagnation. And right now, as we speak, uh, the difference between growth and value is at a historic level, you know, in terms of how they're trading in the market. And this is a reflection of uh, what people are seeing in terms of the scarcity of growth. So you have to invest for growth. You have to invest for yield. The real question is, is how can you do that in a way that is safe from mean reversion? Uh, that means that you're not doing it at a point where in the cycle, uh, you know, you have this huge dichotomy and then you get caught out because that, that uh, dichotomy diverges towards the mean. Uh, it's very tricky, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to hit up with uh, the Nicolas of the world because they get uh, crushed forty percent down. Uh, but you know there are companies out there that offer growth uh, that offer gro uh, dividend growth um, at a good price. I think he was talking to that in in particular. You're you're looking at places where you can hide that are relatively safe from a growth perspective and also from a downside risk perspective. And the same is true on the on the yield side. The real question is, is where can you hide for yield uh, without taking on undue risk from a credit perspective? Interestingly, I think that he talks about 30-year bonds in, in the US. Uh, you, you know, I think that that is a, a relatively contentious uh, subject because you, you are taking on duration risk there. Uh, and obviously, if the economy does better than we expect, if inflation uh, goes up more than we expect, if interest rates go up more than we expect, we saw the 10-year bond go up today, uh, then, you know, you could, uh, you could get hurt. Yeah. For people who didn't spend time in fixed income as you and I did, could you explain a bit about duration risk, how it works, and why it's especially relevant right now? Yeah. So duration risk is basically, basically means that the longer the maturity of the instrument that you're taking, 
that means that the longer it takes for you to get uh, your money back, all of your money back. And if you're getting a fixed income, uh, if the yields, the interest rate environment moves against you, that money that you're getting back because it's fixed in terms of the amount that you're getting back, it is worth less by far than if you had a, a, a smaller period of time during which you could reinvest. So if you have two years and then you can reinvest at the new higher yields, then it's much better than if you have 30 years before you can reinvest at the new higher yields. Yeah, especially relevant for long dated paper, long maturity uh, and low coupon rates. Exactly. So now that we have these really low rates, uh, that duration risk is big in both directions. Um, I've been saying that you know the, yeah. uh, the convergence to zero is largely over. The only place that you can get it, uh, Dave is telling you, is uh, really at the long, long end of, of the spectrum. You can't get it in Europe. You can't get it in Japan anywhere on the curve, but you can get it in treasuries and you, and you can only get it beyond 10 years. We're talking the 30-year bond and maybe even the 30-year strip. That is a zero coupon version of the 30-year bond. Uh, Ed, why don't you jump in and do a little primer on zero coupon? Yeah, so zero coupon means that's the longest of the lo uh, of the long. That means you get absolutely nothing in terms of a coupon. Everything is all tied up in the balloon payment from the government 30 years out. So if you want duration, you want to get the maximum oomph, uh, that's the place to be. But you know, uh, downside risk is is the greatest there as well as the upside risk. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, and they're called uh, they're called strips because they strip off the coupons to create synthetic securities as uh, that de facto become zero coupon bonds. Exactly. Yeah, very well said, Ed. A lot to a lot to digest there. Yeah, great interview. He always does well on the platform. He's a great explainer. Um, you can always take issue with the outcomes, but uh, the analysis in terms of you know uh, what you're faced with in this particular time is spot on. Uh, you know, you're not faced with good prospects either for growth or for yield, and you you really have to uh, to to mind your p's and q's to be able to to get through that. Yeah. Yeah. U.S. Treasury 30-year bond currently priced to yield 1.58%. So, you know, let me uh, take you to a different uh, place because you talked about a interview that I was doing. What uh, There's an interview that you were doing. I think it came out on uh, Friday. Yeah. Uh, it's with uh, a guy by the name of uh, Estes. I thought it was a great interview. Uh, this is on the, the crypto platform. I'm not like a huge crypto guy. But I really felt, found that it was a great uh, human interest story in terms of this guy's particular uh, transformation in terms of leaving traditional finance and then moving into crypto and, you know, how he's um, um, become very ensconced in that space. 
Yeah, Brian Estes, CIO and managing partner at Off the Chain Capital. One of my favorite uh, crypto pieces uh, that we've done thus far. You know, it's interesting if you're really interested in the crypto space. Uh, he's the Bitcoin OG you may not have heard of before. He's been involved in this for many years, uh, and he knows uh, everyone of consequence in the space. He's had a pretty incredible career. So if you're a crypto person, it's definitely an interview for you. If you're not a crypto fan, it's a terrific piece, I think, just as a general conceptual toolkit for how investors think about the world. Brian's a very smart guy. Uh, and just listening to his thought process, he explains uh, how he reached some of the conclusions that he reached and then went on to put a great deal of skin in the game. Uh, a lot of uh, his uh, personal, not just net worth, but his time and energy uh, and effort walking away from a successful career uh, as a traditional capital markets investor. It's just a great, it's a, it's also just an inspiring personal story. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was the part that got me, is the, uh, the personal story, very inspiring. He's very upbeat, uh, you know, because he's had some adversity. I'm not going to give away uh, yeah. what that adversity is, but, you know, I, I just found it a, a remarkable uh, interview and uh, and he's a, a remarkable human being. Yeah, I will say this, though. Uh, pretty much every success that he had always begins with someone telling him, no, Brian, I'm sorry, you can't invest in this. We can't let you do it. You can't do this. You can't do that. And the story about how he overcame effectively all of his big trades, all of his big investments were, uh, you know, when, after someone had told him no, usually several times. You know, before I give up on this uh, line uh, in terms of this interview, the interesting bit that I found when you talk about that is the no that he got for concentrating the portfolio. Yeah. And and to me, that, that also opened up the, uh, his the mind about how he thinks about things. Yeah. Uh, it's similar actually to how Warren Buffett thinks about it. he's like, you know, a, a lot of people say diversify, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But you know, Warren Buffett says put your eggs in one basket, but watch that basket, you know, and he's essentially saying the same thing in that he's saying, I, I made these concentrated bets. Why? Because he talked about the I think it was the the S curve where you know during the first uh, period of growth, the growth from zero to 10 percent of penetration happens at the same rate uh, as the, the move from 10 to 90. So you want to be at that, that first part there. Uh, that's where the, that's where you can get in before the thing goes vertical. I mean the, the, the shift from here to here is massive. Yeah, that's one of those great kind of conceptual toolkit pieces that he talks about. He learned that in Isaac Newton's classroom at Cambridge. Right. It's a great story. Um, it's also interesting. I was just looking at, you know, he has only a few hundred Twitter followers. If someone you're looking to get into early and to say, I was following Brian Estes uh, before anyone else, now is your time to do it. Final point on that interview, Ed, which I think is kind of interesting, uh, and I don't think we've discussed this yet, but I did the interview in a very different way. Uh, typically, the conversations that you and I have, the conversations we have uh, with other guests, they tend to be uh, highly thematic uh, in nature. This one was really following the life story, the arc uh, of, of Brian, and, and this is something that uh, you know, we're thinking I'll, I'll do break a little bit of news here. We're, we're exploring some different uh, ways of doing podcasts. Uh, and this is one of the things that I'm thinking a great deal about is how that we can build uh, podcasts and other types of, uh, of interviews where we can follow the, the narrative arc of people's lives. Because I think in, in Brian's case, especially, you can see how understanding someone's life sequentially and the lessons they learned uh, become incredibly important to understanding the philosophy and the mechanics of how he makes his investments. Right. Yeah, spot on. Uh, because, 
uh, that's what the, the the phase shift that I saw in terms of the interview with the investment in uh, growth stocks. I think that's where I saw aha. You know, that's where the light bulb went on in terms yeah. of how he ended up getting into the crypto world. Yeah. Yeah, it really does tee it up quite brilliantly. You, you can see the leaps taking place and you can understand how he was able to identify those uh, opportunities in the crypto space based on the way he was investing uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the tech stock space and perhaps also as a consequence of some of the resistance that he had uh, to making the investments that were ultimately so successful for him. Right. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, that, that was my takeaway as well. Yeah. So talking of successful investors, in case you missed Friday's daily briefing, this week we're kicking off our live uh, guest Q&As in the exchange. This week we have Ted Seides of the Capital Allocators podcast, bond expert George Concalves of Macro Hive, and investment strategies Lynn Alden, who's a favorite uh, on the Real Vision platform. We've posted the links in the description. Uh, so go ahead and jump in and add your questions now if you'd like to be heard. So Ed, what else are you looking at today? I think the last thing that I'm looking at is, uh, you know, I, I told you about uh, uh, Rosenberg and how he has three things that came out of that. One was the, uh, you know, are we in a depression, recession, how to think about it. At a minimum, secular stagnation, I, I think it's a, a depression. The third thing was, what's your investment philosophy? He was talking about growth. He was talking about yield. The second part is about uh, what happens in um, how do you do? How do you get a policy response from this? And I talked a little bit about this with Rishi Sunak. I think uh, this is very relevant to how we're thinking about coverage of the election, uh, because you know, at a very uh, macro level, I, what you have to understand is is that irrespective of whatever happens, if you have a divided Congress in the United States, nothing's going to get done from a, uh, a a stimulus or a deficit perspective however you look at it, positively or negatively. If you want a supply side from, uh, from Trump and, and, and you want uh, stimulus on the investment front, you're not going to get it if you have the Democrats holding the House of Representatives. On the other side of things, if Biden were to win and you have the Senate held by the Republicans, He's not going to get what he wants. He's not going to be able to deficit spend in the way that he wants to, and especially not the way that uh, the left of the Democratic Party wants to. So to me, you have a very starkly different outcome with a divided government uh, versus a, a one-party government. And so the way that I'm thinking about this is, is, th is that you have two outcomes almost, uh, and you have to go down from those two outcomes. One is divided government in the United States. And the other is a uniform government in the United States. Those are two specific types of outcomes. Why? Because we're in a period of extreme economic stress, almost to the point of depression. I would call it a depression. And when you have divided government, you're not going to be able to solve the problems of that extreme economic problem. No, Ed, that's an analysis that actually makes sense to me, unlike uh, what we hear from the astrologers and soothsayers reading tea leaves uh, in, uh, you know, in hospital admissions. Uh, just doesn't make any sense. That actually, yeah. I mean, if, if, if you're facing an existential type of crisis, you know, uh, war, uh, famine, a depression, and you can't get it together, you're going to because you have a divide, a division that's very stark. Yeah. then uh, that opens up worst case scenarios economically and otherwise. So yeah. I think that you have to look at that 
uh, and then you have to look at the other side. So those are the two scenarios that I'm looking at uh, purely from an economic perspective. And when we do our election coverage, that's kind of how I'm framing it. Those are the kind of questions I want to, you know, uh, drilled in down on when we talk to uh, our analysts about what they see in the markets, what they see in the economy. Yeah, me too. And I would just add one other uh, additional wrinkle to that, which is the degree of political polarization that we have in the country right now. Divided government during the best of times uh, makes reaching rapid decisions uh, more challenging. In the current environment, uh, it's it's a very uh, it's a very difficult prospect to understand how major decisions can get made in the case of emergencies. Yeah. It, w one last thing, it, w since you're asking me what I'm what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about the U.S and the UK as being more similar uh, to, to each other and other countries as being different in terms of division. Uh, so if you look at the rest of Europe, say Germany, you look at the Netherlands, uh, you look at Sweden, uh, the way that they've come together during the crisis, I think, is different than the way that the US and the UK have come together. I think that the US and the UK are more divided. So in the, US, in the UK, you actually had the election that you needed to have. Uh, there's no divided government because they have a, a parliament and they can get things done. But to right. a degree, I think that you can get a sense of uh, what's coming down the pike by looking at the UK, what's coming down the pike in the US by looking at the UK. They're more similar to one another in terms of how they're dealing with the problems. That's just a, my hypothesis um, than uh, other countries which are dealing with it in a much more cohesive and, uh, and unified way. Yeah, you know, it's interesting under a parliamentary system, the prime minister is effectively uh, in some ways analogous to a combination of the president and the speaker of the house. But as you point out, Ed, they have deep-seated uh, divisions in their culture uh, in many ways uh, analogous to what we have in the United States. So it is definitely a cultural challenge there as well to get things done. Yeah. So for me, something to watch, maybe this Thursday, I, you know, I can pick Roger's brain, what he sees there, but obviously every country is different. Uh, I just think that uh, this election season is uh, is one of the few that's going to have meaningfully uh, big impacts on the economy instead of vice versa. Yeah, very well said. Ed Harrison, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ash. Always a pleasure. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.